Welcome to the Global Investor Podcast, a show that focuses on helping foreign investors enter the lucrative U.S. real estate market. Host Charles Carrillo combines decades of real estate investing experience with a professional background in international banking to interview experts in all areas of U.S. real estate investing. Now, here's your host, Charles Carrillo. Do you have money sitting in the stock market and you're worried about it? Or worse, you have money sitting at the bank, not keeping up with inflation? My name is Charles Carrillo, founder and managing partner of Harborside Partners. And since 2006, I've been investing my money and my family's money into income-producing properties. These are real assets, real properties with real addresses that produce real cash flow. At Harborside Partners, we provide passive investors who love real estate with a turnkey investing solution. If you want to put your money to work in real estate but can't find deals, don't have the time to get funding, and the last thing that productive people want to do is manage real estate. We find the deals, we fund the deals, and we manage the tenants, the termites, and the properties. Partner with us at investwithharborside.com. That's investwithharborside.com. Go to investwithharborside.com. If you love real estate, you like the idea of passive income, and believe that income-producing properties will appreciate over time, go to investwithharborside.com. That's investwithharborside.com. Welcome to another episode of the Global Investors Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Crillo. Today, we have Roger Blankenship. He has personally fixed and flipped more than 1,700 houses and bought and sold over $50 million worth of single-family homes. Roger is also the host of the real estate podcast, Flipping America, which has been ranked as a top 10 business podcast and nationally syndicated radio show. So thank you so much for coming on today, Roger. Glad to be here. Thank you, Charles. So give us a little bit on your background about yourself, both personally and professionally, prior to getting involved in uh, real estate investing. Oh, well, all right. Uh, I didn't intend to be a real estate investor. That's why on my show, I ask everybody what they really intended to be, because most of us aren't what we thought we would be. Um, I trained for the ministry and I spent 20 years working full time in the ministry before I even really gave much consideration to real estate. I started buying some rental houses on the side, but uh, then when it was apparent my time in the ministry was coming to an end, I decided to go for it full time. And that time was October of 2006. <laughs> Perfect timing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Who knew, right? <laughs> I actually bought my first, uh, my first piece of real estate in October, 2006. It was a three family multifamily property. Uh, <laughs> what a time, what a time, a six and a half percent interest rate. I remember that. <laughs> yeah. Well, that that's, you probably did all right on that. Yeah. Yeah. At the end of 06, it was fine. I mean, I just sold them all. I sold that and a bunch of other properties in, in Connecticut that I had uh, last year. So 2022, but yeah, the, um, that was, I remember talking to real estate agents about selling it the year after and they're like, Oh yeah, everything's about that. And then it was like the eight Oh eight. They're like, nah, nah, you're not selling. <laughs> I was just going to say, if you had bought that in 08, you might've gotten a lot lower yeah. price. I bought another property at the end of 08, literally almost two years to the day after. And uh, yeah, it was a whole completely different ball game. End of 08 was like a bloodbath. Where were these properties? They're all in central Connecticut, small little town there, or a okay. little city there, I'd say. Central Connecticut. I, you know, I don't know how hard Connecticut got hit by the, uh, the disaster. Um, not as bad as like Florida and a lot of the other hot markets. You know what I mean? We can Arizona, name them all here. Nevada, yeah. They, yeah. Las Vegas. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all these places that got decimated. It wasn't that bad, but it's still a lot of those properties haven't. Um, I mean, one property I bought and I resold it 15 years later and I got a real discount from what it sold for initially in like 07. 
And I sold it still for, did work to it. And I still sold it for less than what it sold for in 07. And I bought a foreclosure out of the bank afterwards. But so it's like some stuff hasn't, you know, in that area hasn't, uh, in other parts of the country, like you're down the Southeast too. I mean, it would have come back, you know what I mean? But you're buying in areas that really didn't have much, uh, you know, so much population growth and it's difficult area. You know what I mean? Those are difficult places that didn't really recover from GFC. Yeah. Yeah. I know that some places I grew up in Louisville, Kentucky, and uh, talking to my extended family and some friends there, they barely noticed, uh, you know, mm. what great financial disaster, you know, what housing yeah. crisis. Um, but they, you know, there was a different situation going on there in, in Louisville than. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was it was uh, one last thing before we get on with your story was that I was at a real estate conference in 2004 and I was talking to investors. They had a they were taking investor money to buy condos in Miami and they were saying that condos uh, would buy and sell three times before they were built. So that is insane. I mean, it's just like, you know, and I don't, you know, it's it's just like when you look back on that and you're just like, we call that insane now when we're looking at it. That was odd back then. We we're like, wow, this is really interesting. I don't know how long it'll go for. But it was just, I mean, it was crazy the build up to it. You know, yeah. what people were doing, the financing was just I mean, that was it. The financing was so easy. That was what did it all. You know what I mean? So, yeah. but so tell us a little bit about Roger. You you started doing getting into real estate. Um, what were you? You know, what, why did you pick real estate as your investing vehicle, let's say? Well, I like to say it's not rocket surgery. Uh, <laughs> I have, you know, uh, you could take all of the business accounting classes and everything related to that, that I took in college and graduate school, and you could put them in a thimble and have room left over because the number is zero. Um, but because I had been in, in a profession where by choice, we didn't make a lot of money and I was fine with that. I chose it, went to it fine. Um, but whenever something would break in our house, I had two options. I could pay somebody to fix it, or I could go down to the local hardware store, talk to the guy that worked there who had become a friend of mine before this was over with, he was a real friend of mine and uh, ask him how to fix it. He would tell me how, tell me what tools I needed. I could get the tools and do it myself cheaper. And then I picked up a skill and I also had some tools. So uh, that's that became my habit. And after a few years of doing that, I just got the courage. I had an unfinished basement in the house I lived in. So I went back and got him to give me step-by-step -step instructions. And I reframed my, I framed up and finished my entire basement. I even laid the carpet. I did everything. And some of it we had to do two or three times to get it right. I was learning. But, you know, fast forward uh, a few more years when it was time for me to um, think about, you know, when I was 40, I started really thinking about retiring someday, maybe. And I didn't have a lot of options. And one of the gentlemen in my church sat me down and talked to me about the benefit and wisdom of owning rental properties. And he got me to read Kiyosaki's book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And, you know, how many people, I don't know how many people I've talked to on the show, we've done over 600 episodes, have told me that was the impetus that got them. Well, it got me. And so I started looking for rental properties and I went out and made all the classic mistakes with the first ones I bought. The numbers were worked, but the areas were terrible. I didn't have enough cash or liquidity to really take care of the problems that would inevitably arise when you buy in the bad areas. And boy, those were some mm -hmm. tough lessons to learn. But I was hooked. And then 
um, we decided to flip a house because I knew how to make all the repairs, you see. <laughs> and uh, my dad got interested and he put up the money for my first flip. And we didn't make a lot of money. I had a partner and my dad, we made 15,000 on that first flip. And I walked away from that closing with a check for $5,000. And uh, that was, well, one of the larger checks I'd ever held in my hand at that time. And I thought, there's something to this. So I did a few more and then, you know, decided to just go for it. So fast forward a little bit to where you are now and you're doing a lot of training and coaching. You have a great uh, show. Um, how are you able to flip 1700 houses? I mean, the amount of your team and the process and the setup, can you tell us a little bit about how you went from, you know, doing the work yourself, which I imagine you didn't touch any of those 1700 houses after that, really. Um, Some of them I never saw. You, yeah. Tell us a little bit about that, like kind of the process you had, because when I look at that, there's so many different parts about flipping houses, And I've only, you know, I've done a dozen or so in my life before many years back. And, you know, you're finding houses, you got to do the renovations and you got to sell it. It's like anything, you know, there's a whole process with it. And to do that many, I mean, tells me that you had such a team in place for everything from acquisition all the way through disposition. Well, you know, at, at our peak, we never had more than five full-time employees. Um, I, I like, I'm kind of proud of the fact that we yeah. ran lean, but, um, so to, to get there, the first thing, um, in fact, I've got my book on screen over here and, uh, uh, the, the book starts out telling a story of me working on my third house I ever did. I was up on a ladder painting and my phone rang and I climbed down off the ladder and it was somebody who had just driven by and seen the for sale by owner sign in the yard and uh, wanted to know if the house was still available. I said, not only is it available, I'm here right now. So they came over. I had borrowed uh, copies of a contract, a sales contract from a realtor I knew. They were on the counter. We filled out the contract and I went home that night thinking, all right, I just made $30,000 and I did it all myself. Well, uh, come find out a week later, they couldn't qualify for the loan. They had not been pre-qualified. I didn't know to ask that question. There were so many things I didn't know. It, it ended up, we made more money on the house than that anyway, later on. But I started learning the value of having a, a professional uh, realtor sell the houses for me. And then I got to thinking, and then, of course, I'm an avid reader. So I started reading books and, and I read the E-Myth books, ate those up, and I realized, hey, you know what? I'm probably shortchanging myself by doing all of the work myself. So I started looking for contractors and bringing in people. And of course, there were some stops and starts with that too, you know, while you're learning how to hire a good contractor, but I'm taking notes all the way through and I'm reading and I'm learning. And, you know, just because I had no formal training doesn't mean you can sail through this without getting educated. So I sat down with a CPA and learned how to keep the books, learned how to run QuickBooks. Then just, then I only did that so I would know how to hire somebody to hand it off to, just like I had handed off the duties for selling the houses. And uh, eventually, and um, to borrow a phrase from Gerber, um, what's his, is it Brian or Michael? Michael Gerber? Uh, I just know it's Gerber <laughs> when, I, when you say email. Yeah. Apologies, I don't remember that. Um, Michael, I think. I think so. I have it on my shelf here, but it's behind something. That's right. Anyway, Michael said, I see you, Michael. I worked to the point where uh, the only thing that I did were the things that only I could do. Uh, that became a goal early yeah. on. 
And eventually I got there. And the things that I can do that no one else on the team can do is make the final decision about what we buy and make the final decisions about where we're going with some of the rehab stuff and the final decision about, will I take this low offer? That became my role. Now we outsourced, uh, we, we outsourced a closing coordinator who handled our, uh, on the purchase side and the sales side. So whenever we had a closing coming up, she would handle everything. She was a former lawyer who was looking for something else to do. And, uh, we kept her busy because, uh, in the busy years, we were doing 120 houses a year. And, uh, of course, I don't know how to say this without sounding insensitive. I don't want to be, but the great economic collapse was where we really made all of our money because I had capital, I had investors and we didn't have to do a whole lot on the acquisition side, except work the foreclosure auctions really hard. Um, In the state of Georgia, we went from uh, an average of 2000 foreclosures statewide per month to 20,000. And we had our pick of the litter because there weren't that many people around with cash. We would go to the courthouse auction and buy 10 or 15 houses and watch with sadness in our heart that 15 or 20 other houses went back to the lender because we had run out of cash. We could, we had our pick of the litter. We were just buying up everything. Um, we, we would buy $700,000 houses. You know, I don't know if a lot of people realize this, but Lenders were in the in the big crisis in order to avoid getting dinged with REOs on their books and affecting their Texas ratio and all those other things. They were doing effectively a short sale at the courthouse steps. And I, you know, I I bought some deals I couldn't believe. I still can't believe we bought a house in a country club that was worth even then it was worth seven hundred fifty thousand dollars. We bought it for one hundred and three thousand. We bought um, and we we ended up selling it for like four hundred seventy five thousand because the market was going down. But we had a quick sale and a cash buyer. So why turn that down? Um, we had so many deals where we could we tripled our money. It's it I, I can't even tell you how many of them there were. But we bought a house for five thousand dollars that we sold for ninety five thousand. I bought multiple houses for less than ten thousand or less than twenty thousand dollars. These were even in the day hundred thousand dollar houses, and um, uh, it it got so that where the deals were so sweet every month that and there were just three of us in a metropolitan county in in on the south side of Atlanta, Henry County. There were only three of us that were coming to the steps, mm-hmm. and we decided. Um, we, we weren't trying to hurt anybody, but we decided not to bid against each other and just, we'd take turns. All right. You, it's your turn to get the best deal this month. And one of my friends bought a three bedroom, two bath house in Stockbridge, Georgia for $101. <laughs> house was only about five years old. There was nothing wrong with it. Two weeks later, he had tenants living in it. $101. He still owns that house. I asked him just recently. Um, <laughs> crazy, crazy stuff going on. And when you have that, it suddenly you have the opportunity to do 120, 130 houses a year. A lot of them didn't need much work. Some of them needed nothing. And we were we were kind of selective. If we drove by and it looked like the house was going to need more than $20,000 worth of work, we'd pass. But The other thing that we did is I got with my best contractor and we developed a system um, to swarm a house. And uh, 
you know, in, in, in the, you know, Georgia conducts their foreclosures on the first Tuesday of the month. So what do we do the rest of the month? Well, we're working on the houses, but I'm also looking for HUD deals because remember I told you all those houses that went back to the lender, um, we were picking up those deals. Um, our rehab system could do a roof, paint, carpet, new appliances, new countertops if it was needed, basically all of the surface stuff of the house and be in and out in less than 10 days. All right. So, yeah, so when you're saying that, is this what, how big of this area is that you're blanketing for properties? Well, to begin with, we were just in one county, but county. immediately uh, after the crisis, uh, well, I was, I'm sorry, to begin with, I was in two counties, Henry and Clayton okay. County, Georgia. Okay. Um, but then we started branching out. And I remember one of the guys, one of the three guys who were regulars with me at the Henry County Steps, when I started talking about going to the uh, Rockdale County, which is just 10 miles east, he said, oh, I'll never go over there. No, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to stay right here, right at home. So I went over to Rockdale County the next month and I left one of my people to bid for me in Henry County. I had one of my people bidding in Clayton already. I went to Rockdale County and there wasn't anybody there. And so I picked up the best house there and I made $40,000 on it in two months. And so that guy said, oh, wow. And so the next month he had somebody over in Rockdale County bidding against me. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, but once we saw that, the opportunity was really all over the state of Georgia. And so I started getting the foreclosure list for the entire state of Georgia. And we bought properties from the Tennessee line down, well, uh, a little bit further south than Macon, not all the way down. We, we considered going to Savannah, but it's a three-hour drive from Atlanta to Savannah with not a whole lot in between. And uh, so we, we basically focused really from Macon, Georgia, northward and picked up everything we could. And we managed to spend all of our money most months. Right. Yeah. The thing key is you had the money because back then no one had money. And the only things I was really selling, I found during that time was stuff that people were getting, you know, one to four unit uh, single family residential mortgages on because anything over that was gone. There's no, there's no funds out there for it. So you had to stay right in that three, two type thing that you're focusing on. And that's where people could get loans for, you know, FHA mortgages for well, we weren't we weren't trying to borrow money. Yeah. Um, one of the biggest blessings of my whole life was my dad had enough money to stake me to begin with. And he was retired living in South Florida and he was looking for something to do. And and I was getting into this right after the dot com burst. And he had sold his business and put money into the stock market, and was trying to listen to people. But he admitted to me later, I don't understand the stock market. I don't care about it. I never paid attention to it my whole life. All I know is I lost a bunch of money with this dot com bubble. And I want to get back into real estate. I know that. I understand that. So he put up the money for me to buy my first couple of flips. Well, after we did well, of course, he had, you know, he he would uh, meet other old retired guys at the Hardee's on Tuesday morning, you know, for a biscuit. And uh, my mom and my aunt called it the Liars Club, where they would get there and they would talk about fishing and golfing and all that stuff. My dad told his buddies about this deal that he had just done this real estate deal in Georgia. How'd you pull off a real estate deal in Georgia and make that kind of return? He'd put up $90,000 and he'd come back with a check for 5,000 in three months. And he said, well, my son's some sort of real estate genius. He's got this thing up there. The next thing I know, his friends are calling me and saying, hey, I've got 100,000. Hey, I've got 500,000. Hey, I had $1.2 million within the next six months to spend. And it grew from there over the years. 
as we started making a return for our investors, I didn't know any better. I didn't know what this was called. I just know they put up the money. I did all the work. And we split the profits half, uh, half and half. And um, I didn't get exactly half because I was also paying for all of the legal and professional fees and, and the, the expenses of maintaining an office. But I was a little too dumb and inexperienced to even know that then. Um, but we learned things, right? So yeah, yeah. That, that's how it happened. And, you know, it just sort of it wasn't handed to me, but it was an opportunity that presented itself. And I'm grateful for it. That's awesome. That's great. Great story. So you teach a lot of people about investing in real estate. What are common mistakes that you see real estate investors make? Number one is paying too much for the property. And I, I could say that is a broken record over the last six or seven yeah. years. And people are often surprised to hear me say, I haven't bought an investment property. I haven't bought a flip property in Atlanta, in the entire metropolitan Atlanta area. I haven't bought one in now five years. And the last one I bought, we did okay on, but uh, you know you know what's happened with prices over the last four or five years. Price has been going up. Anybody that needs to sell a house can put a sign in the yard, get multiple offers. Wholesalers have come out of the woodwork and they're they're making deals with sellers, but they're putting deals out there. And I get hundreds of them every day still in my email. And they're making deals with sellers that even by their own numbers, it's not a deal. I got a, a deal from a wholesaler the other day. Uh, they want $245,000 for a house. And the house has an ARV of three, $325,000. That's the number that they put in the email. I wanted to write back and say, hey, man, do you realize that even if your numbers are true, there's no money to be made there? Yeah, because they don't yeah. the cost of capital, the cost of the rehab, and the commissions sell the property. But what will, the reason they're doing that, and I have called people out on this a few times, and I'm getting to an answer to your question. Um, what I When I call them out, they say, well, you know, we've got two people wanting to buy it. You know who those people are? People who paid $50,000 to some hotel room-based guru, and uh, they now feel like they've got to justify that investment, and they do so by paying too much for a property. It's It's a problem. But you get short-term short-term rental people pay. Um, I talk to wholesalers, and that's like their big place if they have a prime area with like you know a tourist area. Uh, it that's where they they dump it off to, and they'll rehab it and pay, and it comes out to be their kind of retail property. Yeah, well, um, this is one of the you know I, I have short-term people on my show, and I get a little bit of that shiny object syndrome with these guys because the numbers that they make when I just sort of I sit down and I look at the numbers, man, that's way better than having a long-term rental in there, renter. But wait a minute, everybody, listen to this. Wait a minute, if you don't want to be in the hospitality industry yourself by going in there and doing the cleaning and blah, 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 the turnaround, the unit to get it ready for the next part. You're going to pay somebody to do all of that work. And what I would want to do is I would want to pay somebody to manage it. I want, I want to pay somebody to run the Airbnb ads and handle everything. By the time you've uh, reckoned all of that expense, you might as well just put a long-term tenant in there. Yeah, for sure. Definitely. That's what I see as well. And it's also, it's, uh, there's a lot of other factors, but I'm, uh, I've never done a short-term rental before. I'm, I, you know, I, I understand people make more money with it, but I just don't feel it's as, uh, as a seasoned as a, as an investment option compared to long-term rentals. Yeah. I think a lot about numbers and different things. And of course, one of the things with, uh, with short-term rentals is the changing legal situation. Now they're not likely to do this in vacation areas that are known for short-term rentals, but 
you know, short-term rentals are all over Metro Atlanta because business travelers and so forth. Well, some communities are now passing rules and that's going to get tested in the courts. And I think that the communities will lose because they can't after the fact, take away homeowners rights, but that's an issue to be resolved. And because of that, one of the ways to deal with this is to lease a property with a master lease and then sublease it to your short-term tenants. And that's a way that I think might actually work and the numbers might actually work. I've looked at it enough to believe that that's the way, if I were going to pursue short-term, that's what I would do. Interesting. So what would you suggest to um, say new investors that are out there that are looking to get involved in real estate investing? What's the first thing or first things you would suggest? Take some time to take stock of yourself. Find out what it is you know. Um, In this business, there are a lot of bits of knowledge you need to have, and there are a lot of moving parts. And look, I say this a lot on my show. Flipping houses isn't for everyone because there's a hundred ways a flip can go wrong. Um, But I do believe everyone should consider investing in real estate in some capacity or another. Okay. So first of all, take inventory of your own life. Ask yourself, what do I know? And uh, the three knowledge areas that I think that you, that will give you a leg up in, in this business is if you already know how to run a business. And this is the big mistake that the hotel room gurus make. Well, they don't make it. The people that are going there are tired of being middle managers, but they're not entrepreneurs. They've never owned a business. They don't know what's involved. And they pay, they borrow from their retirement to pay for this opportunity to own a business. They don't know how to run a business. That's a recipe for disaster. Um, So knowing how to run a business. Number two, knowing some things about real estate. If you're a real estate agent or a broker, that gives you a leg up. It doesn't tell you everything you need to know about being an investor, but there's a terminology, there's a whole glossary that you need to understand to be effective in real estate. And number three is knowledge of the construction trades, the parts and pieces of of a building and what's involved in repairing those and some idea of the process that's involved. If you so if you're coming from the trades, then you have a leg up. If you're coming from a real estate background, you have a leg up. Or if you've just even been a business owner, all three of those have a lot of knowledge requirement. So ask yourself, what do you know? Then ask yourself, what do you have? Well, if if you don't have money, you better have time because it takes one or the other. Um, it. If you have plenty of time, then there's a way to do this without having any money. If you have money, there is a way to do this without investing a lot of time, but you better get the knowledge before you put your money anywhere. And it's not just knowledge about the three things I talked about, but also learning who to trust. Because there are now a million sources online for real estate investing. And, uh, you know, if there's a million sources, if that number is true, 500,000 of them are lying to you and 250,000 more are stupid. They don't know what they're talking about. They do five deals and they call themselves a guru. They haven't seen what they don't know. Um, So you have to be careful about who you trust. So I would say that the, the thing to do is after you take stock of yourself, you know, what do you know? What do you have? Um, Think about what do you like? What are your interests? Are you handy? Are you a, a, a deal shopper? Are you um, a shrewd business person? Are you a good judge of people? What 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 are some of those qualities that you have? And uh, once you start doing those kinds of things, you might be able to find 
your perfect fit. And because of this, I developed a course years ago, and this is not a sales pitch for it, but we got a course called Find Your Fit in Real Estate Investing, where I encourage people to take stock of their, their lives with this kind of inventory. I even have them take a personality test. And we see how that weighs in. It doesn't exclude any particular asset class, but it does give you some insight about how to approach whatever it is you choose to do. If you understand your personality and the different personalities you're going to be interacting with. Um, then after you've gotten some knowledge, just find somebody else who's doing it. Go to a local real estate club or listen to some podcasts and find somebody who's approachable and get connected with them in any way that you can. If you find someone out there that you admire and respect what they're doing, get connected to them, follow them on social media, reach out to them. And, you know, I get a thousand emails a day, but when people make it personal and say, Hey, I listened to show episode number 545 and that show, uh, I, I just got this email, which is why it's on my mind. That show changed my life. That it was a show about get up, how to come back from failure and, and defeat. Um, when somebody makes it personal like that, they're going to get a personal response from me. Yeah. Um, and so get connected to that person that you have learned to trust and admire and and just kind of learn from them. And when you get ready to do your first deal, bring in an experienced partner. Hey, there's some real, a lot of great information there for uh, new real estate investors. So as we're wrapping up here, Roger, uh, what do you think are the main factors that have uh, contributed to your success, both uh, personally and professionally uh, over your lifetime? Hmm. I think first and foremost is persistence. Um, and I've even developed my own little phrase, consistent persistency. Because you can't be persistent for one season of your life. Uh, you have to be persistent over and over again. And, you know, I've, I've been blessed uh, to have played two sports in college. I played football and basketball in college and seasons overlap which meant I was putting on two different uniforms throughout the week for a, a portion of the season. And uh, I didn't mind. In fact, I loved it. And if I could do it all over again, I would do it all over again, but it was, it was challenging. And, you know, learning what I needed to learn to be in business was challenging. And guess what? I have had some colossal failures in this business. We didn't talk about that on this show, but uh, after spending four or five years, make it so much money in the collapse. I got overconfident and I went through a period of expansion. I tried to follow a wise path, but I still blew up my own business and nearly went bankrupt in 2014. Wow. Um, so what do you do? You just power through it and you've got to be persistent, go after it. I think that, um, really, Inside of myself, probably the other thing that has um, served me well is a creative approach to problem solving. Um, I went to hear an old guy in real estate. His name is Russ Whitney. Mm -hmm. I went to hear him one time and he said, most people get into their business, think that they're going to do their business. But what they don't realize is 85% of business ownership is not working on the business things. It's solving problems. Yeah. Persistence and creative problem solving. Interesting. Very good. So how can our listeners learn more about you, your business, your training, your books? 
Oh, well, you can go to flippingamerica.net and let's see here. I think I can put that on my screen. Uh, maybe. Uh, it's flippingamerica.net. It's easy enough to remember. And uh, I've got books on Amazon. I've got a book, uh, well, The Flipping Houses in 10 Days, that's on the screen right there. Um, I've got another one called Fantastic Deals and Where to Find Them, How I Get 10,000 Deals in My Inbox Every Week. And um, anyway, there's some other things there, but flippingamerica.net is the best way. Okay, awesome. And I will put that link into the show notes as well. And I want to thank you so much for coming on today, Roger. Looking forward to connecting with you here in the near future. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. No problem. Hi, guys. It's Charles from the Global Investors Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you're interested in getting involved with real estate, but you don't know where to begin, set up a free 30-minute strategy call with me at schedulecharles.com. That's schedulecharles.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Global Investor Podcast. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Google Play to get new weekly episodes. For more resources and to receive our newsletter, please visit globalinvestorpodcast.com. And don't forget to join us next week for another episode. Nothing in this episode should be considered specific, personal, or professional advice. Any investment opportunities mentioned on this podcast are limited to accredited investors. Any investments will only be made with proper disclosure, subscription documentation, and are subject to all applicable laws. Please consult an appropriate tax, legal, real estate, financial, or business professional for individualized advice. Opinions of guests are their own. Information is not guaranteed. All investment strategies have the potential for profit or loss. The host is operating on behalf of Syndication Superstars, LLC, exclusively.